listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. In August 2005, a gigantic hurricane named Katrina hit New Orleans. It's easy to forget it was almost the entire size of the Gulf of Mexico. And it devastated the city and the surrounding areas. And everyone remembers these photos, these stories, the pain that erupted from the region. Got a shot of the football stadium downtown, flooded streets, rescue workers scrambling to do their best. Over 1,800 human lives were, were lost, and I'll spare you the photos there. 800,000 homes were destroyed or damaged. To put that in perspective, that's every single household in Metro Birmingham, all of them, either destroyed or damaged in a day. Katrina remains the costliest catastrophe in U.S. history. And I know this was vivid to me and it was vivid to most of you, many of you. If you were in the South at all, you met Katrina refugees. Maybe you went to help in a cleanup of some sites, sent money, prayed prayers. I remember being at school and welcoming Katrina refugees. It was a whole thing at our college campus of befriending them and helping them make friends and people making space and dorms to embrace Katrina refugees and hearing their stories broke your heart. But before this catastrophe that seemed unknowable and unpreventable, there was actually a warning, not from a faraway fortune teller, not from an Ivy League hall at some academic conference, but right in New Orleans, the local newspaper, the Times-Picayune, actually wrote this three years prior, washing away. Worst case scenarios, if a hurricane hits a Louisiana, billions have been spent to protect us, but we grow more vulnerable every day. It's only a matter of time before South Louisiana takes a direct hit from a major hurricane. And this news article wasn't a feeble attempt at fear-mongering to sell papers. It wasn't just a guess. It was a true warning. And a true warning is this. It's a message with observable signs and a likely outcome. And the articles in this five-part series would show with full diagrams as if they were written after the disaster three years later, but they were all written before. In today's passage, these six verses are some of the most intense language you will find anywhere in the New Testament. And they are intense because they are meant to serve the same purpose, to be a warning that we must pay attention to with observable signs, but this time a certain outcome, that God's judgment is coming for all who trust in their riches instead of Jesus. Verse 1 is painful even to read. Look with me at verse 1. It says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl. Can you imagine a human weeping and howling for the miseries that are coming upon you? Have you ever heard an animal die like a mammal? It's terrible. And the sense of the Greek here is like a dog in a bear trap 
pulling on its leg as if death and its executioner is coming near. It couldn't be a more intense way for James to say the rich should start screaming that their destruction and judgment will come upon them and will come soon. And when James says you rich, he's declaring a warning not to the believers reading this letter, but rather to the rich, land-owning, non-Christians who are likely employing Christians out in their fields, who owned large parts of this part of the Roman Empire. And this letter, though, is written to Christians, but the text gives us a couple clues of why this six verses is actually not written to the people who are receiving the letter. The first thing is he tells the rich of judgment in these six verses, but he doesn't appeal to their faith in any way to repent. He just says, this horrible thing is happening. The second is this. In the coming verses 7 and 8, James encourages the Christian leaders, the Christian readers of the letter, to patiently endure their rich oppressors. So there's this moment you're writing a warning to people who the letter is not sent to. It's being sent to churches filled with Christians, but it's not being sent to the people who are actually getting the warning. And this kind of warning to the evildoer, but for the suffering audience, is actually really common in the Old Testament. You can look at something like Isaiah or Jeremiah, where it's writing to these other peoples, these people who are oppressing God's people, but it's not a letter like sent to them. It's actually for the believing people's audience. But while I want to explain this text accurately in its original context, I also want to preach it truthfully to our context. And here lies the problem with preaching about riches. When you preach on riches, nobody actually thinks they're rich. Rich is a moving target. Rich is always some other gal, some other guy, some other family down the street. It's that uncle that you don't really like, but, you know, the gift cards are nice. Rich is always somebody else. And I'll prove it to you, fam. I'll prove it. They asked people in a recent Gallup poll, if you made $30,000 a year, they asked people right in that income bracket, single household, $30,000 a year. And they said, hey, how much would you need to make to be rich? And they responded, $60,000 a year. They asked another group who made $50,000 a year. The same thing. How much would you need to be, make to be rich? Average answer, about $100,000 a year. In a separate Money Magazine poll, so a totally different survey, they asked wealthier people who had $2.5 million of assets to their name. They said, hey, when would you feel rich? Y'all want to guess it? $5 million. See, rich is a moving target, and for us, it's usually double whatever you're making right now. It is. There's almost no one in this room who'd say, yeah, I'm rich, I'm, you know, I'm doing real good. Usually we go, ah, you know, we're just making it, trying to to make it work, no matter how much we're making or what our circumstance is. To put it in a more global and historical perspective, according to the Brookings Institute, a respected think think tank, if you're a single person in 2021 making $20,000 USD a year, you're actually in the top 10% of all people globally. 
And that's a sobering stat, and those stats can be a little tough because there's all sorts of power of currency in different countries, and even within the U.S., a dollar in New York City is not a dollar in Shelby County, Alabama. They are different things. But the truth is, when the Bible talks about being rich, whether believing rich or unbelieving rich, we should perk up. We would be absolute fools to go, oh, totally not talking about us is one of the wealthiest countries in the history of the world and one of the highest per capita incomes in the history of the world. We would be fools to ignore a warning like this. And even if you don't feel rich, maybe I said 20,000 and you're like, I wish. I ask you to check your heart because everyone that's ever watched HGTV bought a lotto ticket, lusted after a nice car, clicked through luxury clothes, or lusted over someone's IG travel photos, has dreamed in their heart about being rich. Whether you actually are, or it's just all in here, rich has certain temptations, dangers, and problems. See, church, that's the true war. Our struggle with money is actually a war for our soul. That Jesus, not money, would become our great treasure. We can't treasure money and treasure Jesus at the very same time. And that's let this warning strike like thunder or lightning in your heart. Don't blow it away. But pay heed because this passage gives three clear signs of when someone is losing the war. When they're losing the war, that their soul is trusting in Jesus in riches, not Jesus. And here's the first sign. You store riches only for them to slip away. Look at verses two and three with me. It says, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You laid up treasure in the last days. One day, all your material things will rot or you'll be rotting and your riches will be left. We have a rot problem either way. Even silver and gold will rot in their usefulness to you when the whole point of silver and gold is they don't corrode and they don't rust. But the author is telling you as precious as they are on earth, they're not going to be precious to you in heaven. One day, the riches you store up aren't going to help you before the mighty judgment of God himself. Instead, our vast unused riches will stand as evidenced against us. Imagine a courtroom where everything we chose not to use in the kingdom of God, to choose wrongly, to use self-indulgently, just to store up in barns after barns after barns, will stand as this big gleaming evidence against me that it will be so compelling, this witness against me, that it will burn my flesh like fire. I don't even know what that means totally, but it's not good. I don't want a white-hot witness against me of riches I chose to put in a barn. The key is the last line of verse 3. Remember, being rich is not a sin, but money is dangerous 
yet it's also neutral. But time is not equal. We are in the last days. Every single day since Jesus rose from the dead until his return, biblically, over and over, we saw it in 1 Thessalonians, is the last day. Why? Because no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. It could be the parking lot. It could be in another millennia. It could be more. But every day since Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible speaks of them as the last days in New Testament letter after New Testament letter in which our money is to be used to live, to provide reasonably for ourselves, and be used for the kingdom of God. And to use money for the kingdom of God, which means to use our money for God's glory, not our own glory. And then for God's glory means for His purposes in the world, not our own. How can we store and stack money to never use when people have never heard the name of Jesus? Think deeply on that, that quandary that we're saying, I have all these things that can get stuff done. That's what money is in every culture of all time is material to get things done, to have people move, to have people work, to make change, whether it was seashells or coins or Bitcoin now, it is a force in a unit that says, this is how much work is valued. And we are Christians that have work to be done. So why would we stack and store it when there's people who've never heard of Jesus? How can we invest greatly in the hopes of the S&P 500 and not invest deeply in the internally important work of our own local church? How can we go on living as if the end isn't near when we neither know the hour or the day of our Lord's return? How can injustice, orphanhood, Neglect of vulnerable people go on and on and on when we have the ability to help, whether with our hours, our hands, or our financial accounts. That's what it means for it to stand against you. It's not just what about we do for the Lord, it's what's left undone. There's sins of commission, the things we do, and there's sins of omission, the things we should have done. And this is speaking first to the omission. The God is even saying, even for these unbelieving people and their riches, I'm holding against them too, that I had a plan for those riches. I have a purpose for all things. Deuteronomy 8 says, all wealth you have is from the Lord. Nowhere else. He gave us our body. He gave us our time. He gave us our abilities. It's never ours, but it's always on loan. See, the hoarding of money is unbearable because time is short and people are precious to God. Time is short and people are precious. That's where to invest our money. The Lord will return and Christians have been given a mission to fulfill. Even these non-Christians, this piling cash will stand against them. Jesus gave a parable in Luke 12, 16, 21. It's a story that illustrates it so beautifully. And very likely, James is riffing on this story that he heard from his brother's lips and maybe just sitting in the grass. And this is what he's thinking of it when he's writing this book. He said, and he told this parable, Jesus, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. 
eat, drink, and be merry. That's, that's basically the American dream, just if we need to relabel the parable. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Worth memorizing that phrase. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. I know there's lots of inspirational things to put on your iMac at work. That might not be a bad one. then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Church, very clearly, I want to encourage you just as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does, be rich towards God. Don't let your riches run your life. All our money is God's money. And the second sign that your soul is trusting in Jesus, uh, trusting in riches, not Jesus, is you live in self-indulgence. Look at verse 5 with me. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Here's the problem of luxury and self-indulgence. Luxurious living or self or overindulgence is trying to live heavenly with material things in a broken world. Trying to live on luxury and self-indulgence is trying to live heavenly. We all have a yearning to live in a perfect place. But you're trying to do it with material things in a broken world where it's never going to satisfy. It's trying to be ultimately satisfied or at least deeply distracted in the things of this world on this side of heaven. This isn't saying Christians can never have nice things or nice meals, but to make luxury your norm is problematic, regardless of your income level. Your income level can rise and you don't have to raise your standard of living to astronomical levels. We are told to just get as much as you can, overloan yourself, go as far into debt as possible to try to be happy. And I am telling you, the way of self-indulgence, overindulgence, luxury, you are chasing a deeper desire of your heart in the very wrong way. Often that's what sin is. It's a right desire, broken, twisted, expressed wrongly. People do all sorts of things to try to belong. People do all sorts of things to try to find joy. They do all sorts of things to try to find peace. And there's a good God who promises that to everyone who follows Jesus. Living on earth as if it's your final home is not good for your soul. This doesn't mean you can't make good investments in quality goods or a quality home. Often quality things are the long-lasting buys that are the most kingdom-minded and consumer-conscious way to go. God made riches for our enjoyment. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 18. It says, command those who are rich. So he writes this letter to rich Christians. This is Paul writing again, or James wrote this other letter. This is Paul writing. He knows some rich Christians, so he has to put it in here. It says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, 
but to put their hope in the certain God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Don't put your hope in wealth or it's going to rot you from the inside out. But do enjoy money, enjoy riches as it is, as a gift from God to be used by his commands. See, there are rich Christians, but they are under command from the Lord to treat their money as a gift in this way. And look what the next two verses of Timothy 6 say. They're so instructive to us. Command the rich to do good to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to be willing to share. Your riches are an opportunity for good, not just a curse of being bet for bad. You have an opportunity, my friends. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. You can reward yourself in the future. And I know we're uncomfortable talking about rewards, but James talks about rewards and the Bible talks about rewards that you, these investments on earth will pay out in heaven so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Church, see, letting go of our riches helps us take hold of eternal life, both now and forevermore. It's been said a bunch of times by preachers, live for the line of eternity that wraps around the world, not the dot, which is our life. It's the very same teaching. And our role with our riches is to do good. And to do good like trunk or treat. How fun was that? I didn't know. <laughs> the COVID got me. I hated missing out. But can I get a deeper cheer for trunk or treat? You're like, yeah, kids having fun, loving their neighborhood, and whatever. And we're not too cool to love people. Let's just be very clear. Good. Where to do good? Like building a local church together in an underserved East Birmingham area to the glory of Jesus. We are to do good like helping pay for adoptions. We are to do good like taking care of widows. We are to do good like launching missionaries to the most lost parts of our globe. We are to do good by throwing parties for old friends, for new friends, making space for people unlike yourself, making space to share the gospel, to actually have a relationship that has a credibility to say, I follow Jesus. And that causes a real conversation about the things that matter the very most. Your money can be used for all of those kingdom things. It can be used for good, like creating a monthly hospitality budget to spend, to bring people into your home, not to impress them, but to connect with them. Christians, you have a choice in every interaction. Do I want to connect with someone or impress someone? Because you can't do both. We are not to leave people in awe of us, but in awe of our Lord. And that means connecting our heart to them instead of trying to impress them. You can do good by even generously blessing people for fun. Men, when's the last time in your life you just went, bought some great steaks, invited your two best friends over, and just wanted to show and tell them that you love them? That's a great use of your money. Loving people is underrated. Let's do it. Church, being rich isn't the problem if Jesus, not riches, is our treasure. Being rich is not the problem. If Jesus, not riches, is our treasure. The third sign is this, that your soul is trusting in riches 
not Jesus. You steal from those who work for you. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages, the payments due to the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. You said you pay them X, you paid them Y, or didn't pay them at all, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Too often, the high living of one person often means the low living of another, both now and in world history. This is not a new problem or a unique problem, but an ancient problem of the wheel of greed going round and round. And here the rich are literally oppressing their workers by not paying them, but that's not unique the wider history and story of sin at work in our global economy would speak to this. Whether it's American race-based chattel slavery, whether it's the underpaid and dangerous work environments of the Industrial Revolution, or right now, the sweatshops that make cheap t-shirts, handbags, shoes, and other things, underpaid farmers, workers, child slaves, making coffee and, and chocolate cheap, or other products overseas or the defrauding of migrant workers in the U.S., or simply a bad boss treating his employees as cogs in a machine rather than people. It's all the same example of the wheel of greed turning. And guess what helps it turn? It's not the people who feel like they're on top. It's all of us. They're hoarding, self-indulgence, the very same thing. We all have our hands on the same wheel because that's what sin does. It brings death and destruction. Exploitation, not paying fairly or taking advantage of someone in the name of increased profits is sin. See, God is distinctly concerned about injustice towards those who are dependent on us in some way because how you treat those who serve you reveals who you think is above you. How you treat those who serve you reveals who you think is above you. If you want to know if you fear God, you want to know if you live under the mighty hand of a loving Lord, ask how do you treat people who serve you? Whether it's waiting tables or making goods or cutting grass or employees you oversee, look at anyone you serve and you probably have your answer. Church, this is a warning. God is listening. Don't let people be crying out to God on your behalf. That's not a spot you want to live, especially not as a follower of the king. This is the war for your soul, church. Verses 5 and 6 continue. It says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. In a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one, and he does not resist you. When we fatten our hearts on material things, it leaves no appetite for spiritual life. When we fatten our heart on material things, numbing ourselves into thinking life's okay, we're really quenching and hurting our appetite for our true spiritual life. 
living with hope and riches instead of Jesus, slowly but surely convinces us that this life is all there is to live for. It starts to seduce us into believing the sudden and the right now is all that will ever matter, when nothing could be further from the truth. When we become comfortable here on earth, when the scriptures call us to be citizens of heaven, and when our desire for Jesus starts to get misplaced with material things, we start to think life here and now is all there will ever be. Our eyes drift from eternity to the seeming certainty of riches when these riches are anything but certain. If your heart vibrates and you get arrhythmia every time your iPhone gives you a notification that a certain stock or the whole market is crashing, that's a bad place to live, that a financial tool can choose your faithfulness to God or not. James tells us that a heart fattened on riches will face the slaughter like cattle. And here's why. When we trust in riches, we by definition do not trust Jesus, the only salvation for our sins. Therefore, judgment awaits for our sins. And that's what verse 6 alludes to. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. Thank you, Elena. She is quite wonderful. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. Church, Jesus is the righteous one. It's singular here. Commentaries do more song and dance to get around this than I've ever seen. They're like, oh, someone got murdered in the field, or this is just some righteous people somewhere. No, the righteous one who doesn't resist is Jesus. The one who didn't resist death on a cross. Jesus is the one murdered and condemned by worldly people. To love money over Jesus is to have no need for Jesus. To have no need for Jesus is to join the mob that murdered the righteous one. See, Jesus illuminates this with force in Matthew 6, 34. It says, no one can serve two masters. This is Jesus' words. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's an impossible juggling act. You can't do it. Don't take my word for it. Take the Lord's word. John Piper calls loving God over money the suicide of the soul. It is maybe the most common problem in every culture of all world history. It's not just an American thing. It's an every human ever thing. But here's the very, very, very good news, church. There is someone you can trust with all your riches, whether you have a little or have a lot. Instead of trusting in your riches, you can trust the person who doesn't even resist you now, no matter what you've done with your money so far. Jesus is inviting you to follow him and live. And consider this Jesus. He's the richest one in all history. The one who had everything but for your sake and my sake and everyone in the world's sake became poor. The one who could have hoarded 
instead gave it all away down to the very blood in his veins. Even his last breaths, he's crying out for you and me. The one who knew true luxury, true value, true comfort, true acceptance, true respect, true significance. The one who left home, left heaven to be a baby born in a barn, born in the scandal, had to escape a genocide as a baby, became a refugee to come back out of Egypt to work with his hands and then lived without a home as he grew. He suffered for us and did not resist his faith but died on a cross for you and I sin. The one who was never self-indulgent lived in self-denial for us with every breath and word of his life. The one who could have oppressed us was oppressed for us. This Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the Christ of God, the only Savior for men and women, the one who could have and should have crushed us as the greedy rebels we very much are, instead saved us. By dying on a cross, stripped naked, beaten bloody, dying for the sin of all, to rise from the dead victoriously, to give us the ability to choose Jesus over money. See, church, you can trust Jesus with your riches today because you can trust Jesus with your soul forever. Look at what our master says in this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, which James is mirroring here. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths, and eat, where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart also will be. Church, don't store up here. Store your treasures in heaven by living and giving to the kingdom of God. Your riches are not just dangerous, they're also an opportunity because money is a gift from God to us. Heavenly treasure will never rust. It won't be stolen. It can't be cheated from you. It can't be destroyed. And wherever our treasure is, our heart will follow. So if you treasure Jesus and his kingdom with your earthly rotting riches, your heart will follow there. And that leads to a tough question. If you find your heart is cons consistently set on worldly things, it's time to ask, where is my treasure keeping me and leading me? If Jesus promises, my heart will follow it. If I find myself consistently focused on worldly things, it's time to ask, have I let my treasure, where is my treasure leading me? When we refuse to trust Jesus with our riches, it shows money, not Jesus, is truly our God. When we refuse to trust Jesus with our riches, it shows money, not Jesus, is truly our God. So today, my hope is that you would see your own spiritual poverty, to see our own brokenness, to see our own sins, whether it's money or something totally else. And don't numb our heart with riches or things of this world or experiences we can buy. Because Jesus will take that poor, needy, broken spirit that you have, and he'll give you the true riches of himself for free. When you see your need for sin, 
that's exactly the time to run to Jesus. If you don't see your need for sin, then you'll never understand the Savior. But Jesus is saying, if you have a broken heart, if you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt, then I'm here for you. Come and live. Jesus loves you and wants to save you from your money. Jesus is declaring, isn't declaring war on being rich, but rather Jesus is warring against this world for your very soul. Church, here's the truth. Jesus actually wants your heart. He's the richest man that will ever be, period. It's always about your heart. That's why he came. That's why he left true luxury, was to come for you. Don't let your riches or hopes in riches steal your soul. Jesus was slaughtered for us. In church, that's how he won the war for your soul. Today is a warning, much like the times Picayune gave on what would be Katrina. And a warning is worthless unless we obey. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.